it's my bad. I have my stupid uh, headphones on, and I don't know that it was was I was playing the Eagles lead-in music. Was anyone able to hear that, or it was all blocked out? Loud and clear, and I love the Eagles, and it's a perfect <laughs> song. QB, you start and you can't stop. Exactly, or you know, from uh, what's the line in the movie? You can't leave. No, Jerome, you can't leave. We're not done with you yet. So, at any rate, Joseph, <laughs> you become sort of the man of the hour. We're probably one of the most sought-after speakers these days given everything that's going on with the fed it's all fed all the time and so um, i'm really really happy that you were will be with us for the hour um there probably was a time and i'm going to say this respectfully that a nerdy fed watcher was kind of like not the, exactly uh, the world's most interesting man but i think jerome pal has uh, catapulted your career path here so um i want to thank you for all your contributions your Twitter, your 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 Twitter feed's fantastic. Uh, you've done a lot of podcasts lately. It's absolutely awesome. Um, so, I don't know, Joseph. But we look, look, why don't we just make this easy and we'll just kind of like go with the conversation. Um, I uh, I'd like to start out, if we may. Um, you and I spoke. If it's okay with you, I'd like to play. There's a there's a you have a clip. Um, we talked about this, uh, the Bill Dudley clip um, from uh, that you ran recently. And it was a, it was a uh, CNBC interview with um, uh, Steve Leisman, and I thought it was really spot on. Uh, before I play it, um, could you just maybe Joseph just you know the the Fed seems to be at a at a crossroads here. It's like the old Yogi Berra line: when you come to a fork in the road, take it. So before I tune, before I tee this up, maybe just from where you sit. Um, what do you think the Fed's thinking here? I mean, you know, they got to slow the economy down to get inflation under control. And what do you think is going through their minds right now, Joseph? So I think the Fed has a history where whenever they see a poor economic growth, the, their, their instinct is to cut rates. And that's certainly been the regime since post-CFC. But I think we're in a time where the regime is changing and the market is not very good at regime change. One of the ways that you can see this is, if you remember, right after the GFC, the market was always pricing the Fed to quickly hike rates to about 4% because that's where rates were before the GFC. But that never happened. So Fed was basically low for a very long time. And again, we're, we're at this point where the regime is changing because we have high inflation. And so the market still thinks that the Fed is just going to cut rates immediately because over the past few months, we seem to have a little bit of weak economic data. Now, the Fed right now is trying to make the balance between its two mandates, full employment and price stability. Now, usually there are trade-offs between these two mandates because when the Fed hikes rates, maybe it gets inflation lower, but then it also makes unemployment higher. So these two mandates push against each other. And in the same way, when they cut rates, maybe they get unemployment uh, lower, but maybe inflation becomes higher. So again, there's a trade-off. Now, usually this would be a high, usually this would be a hard choice for the Fed, but Powell has actually made it really clear right now that right now they're a one-mandate Fed. They're really first and foremost about inflation. They say that full employment is conditional on price stability and their commitment to price stability is unconditional. So from the Fed's perspective, it's actually pretty easy what they're gonna do it's just that the market hasn't grasped this regime change. And this clip that you're about to play, George, it just encapsulates it perfectly. Now, for those of you who don't know, 
uh, President Dudley was formerly the president of the New York Fed, and he was one of the smartest and sharpest people on the Fed. He was their Bain Trust. And so when he, when he says something, you guys really have to listen because he knows what he's talking about. Thanks for that, Joseph. And I actually got to know Bill Dudley a bit uh, my prior life managing a hedge fund when Dudley was a chief economist uh, for Goldman Sachs before Jan Hatzius. And I thought he was always a very sensible fellow. So let me play this. This time, I do not have my headphones on, so hopefully you'll hear this clearly. This clip is going to run about five minutes, so everyone just listen. Before I get to your uh, uh, calls about what the Fed needs to do here, let me just ask you this. Has the Fed lost the thread here in, in that we have people come on and say, well, now after the Fed's pivot, inflation is still 8.5%, uh, and the market is pricing in cuts. You have a one Fed official after another coming on and saying, um, we're going to stay uh, uh, tight for a while here. Is the Fed lost the narrative here, Bill? Well, I think the market's misunderstanding what the Fed is up to. Market's taking the notion that they're going to slow down the rate of uh, tightening to imply that the peak in rates is going to be lower <laughs> and the Fed's going to cut rates in 2023. I think the Fed's going to be higher for longer than what market participants uh, understand at this point. And I think basically people have misread the last uh, press conference they took the notion that uh, we might not get 75 basis points in September as implying that the Federal Reserve is almost done. I don't think the Federal Reserve is almost done. Uh, they know that they have to do quite a bit more to push uh, the unemployment rate up to generate additional slack in the U.S. economy. And if you look at underlying inflation measures like you know the trimmed uh, CPI, the trimmed PC deflator, and the median CPI, and those 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 underlying inflation measures are running in the four to six percent range. So there's a lot of work to do. Even if energy prices come off and bring down the headline rate of inflation, the Fed's got a lot more to do. Bill, why don't you give us your idea of how much more the Federal Reserve has to do? We have uh, Fed officials, I, I think uh, Jim Bullard is talking about going to 4.4. Uh, even Charlie Evans, uh, these are people you have worked with for many years, is talking about three and three quarters to 4%. Uh, is that sort of the range where you think the Fed needs to go? Or do you think it needs to go higher? Well, I think it depends on how financial markets react to the Federal Reserve's tightening. As Paul said, the, the economy runs on financial conditions, not just short-term interest rates. So if the markets are buoyant, then the Federal Reserve has to do more. I think 4% plus is the minimum that I'm expecting. I think the other thing that's important to recognize here is the Fed's not going to ease off anytime soon because they need to be confident that they're actually getting inflation back down to 2%. The mistake of the 1970s was not that uh, uh, Chairman Burns didn't tighten monetary policy. He did tighten monetary policy. He actually generated a couple of recessions, but he didn't stay tight enough for long enough. And so inflation got embedded. Inflation expectations rose. And then that's what required Paul Volcker to come in and really put the economy to, through the ringer. And Chair Powell doesn't want to do that. So they want to be highly confident that they've solved the problem of inflation before they relent. Bill, the Fed is not winning that argument. When you look at the rate outlook as priced in the futures market, guys, if you have that Fed rate outlook chart, I don't know if you got it done, but but the end of next year, the market is pricing in rate cuts, which tells you that, and, and I started thinking about this, the Fed's message is not symmetric. It said, we're not even thinking about thinking about tightening, but it hasn't said we're not thinking about thinking about loosening. So, um, the Fed has been, on the one hand, very strong about easing policy, but not that strong about staying tight. And, and, and I also think, Bill, when the market has it wrong, it's sort of the Fed's fault. The Fed has to be responsible for that. What's your view on that? 
Well, I think the problem here is that the, the market doesn't believe Powell when he says he wants to get inflation back down to 2%. Uh, they think basically if inflation is 3% uh, you know, middle of next year and the economy is soft, the Fed will relent. I think that's the key question. I believe that Powell means what he says, but it's going to take time for the market to understand that. Bill, um, you know, one of the challenges, I'm sure, for Fed officials in trying to convey this message is that if we go back one year and see what Fed officials were sincerely saying about how rates were likely to stay lower for longer, maybe we'll have one hike this year. I mean, conditions change, and the market might just be reacting to the anticipated change in what inflation might do, or, uh, you know, inflation could come down the hard way through a recession or the easy way through, you know, statistical good luck uh, and, and just the Fed's actions already in place. So I just wonder how you would navigate it in that role right now, uh, aside from what is, is happening already, which is Fed officials saying that nothing much has changed about their current framework. I think the important thing here is if you were willing to ignore transitory inflation on the way up, you need to ignore transitory inflation on the way down. So if the headline inflation rate comes down sharply because of the decline in, say, energy prices, you really want to look through that in terms of what's going on beneath the surface. Let's look at wages, for example. The wage trend seems to be about 5 to 6%. That is not consistent with 2% inflation. Why are wages rising so fast? Because inflation is high and because the labor market is really tight. The key issue here is the tightness of the labor market. The labor market is much tighter than the Federal Reserve wanted it to be, expected it to be. Uh, the ratio of unfilled jobs to unemployed workers is 1.8 to 1. It was in, in February 2020, when the labor market was also very tight, the ratio was 1.2 to 1. So the labor market is much tighter than the Fed wants. The wage inflation rate is too high, not consistent with 2% inflation. That's why the Federal Reserve has to navigate this, generate a slowdown that lasts long enough to push the unemployment rate up well above 4%. Shepard Smith. So, Joseph, I think uh, Bill Dudley hits it on, nails it, hits it on the head. What, what would you, where would you agree, disagree? Where, what would you embellish or elaborate on in terms of what he said, Joseph? I think I, I agree with you, George. I think he just totally nailed it. Um, so for those of you listening, for context, the market, imply, the market is pricing in that the Fed would begin to cut rates uh, early next year. But the Fed is telling you through their dot plots and through their speakers that they're going to hike rates to about three and a half, four percent, and they're going to keep it there uh, for the entire year next year. So there's this big disconnect between what the Fed is saying and what the markets are saying. Now, I think Steve Leesman did a great job in that interview when he noted that, you know, part of the reason that the market is not believing the Fed is that because the Powell has a reputation for pivoting. Now, if you recall back in 2018, for example, in December 2018, Powell and the FOMC were telling everyone that they're going to start hiking rates uh, in 2019. However, the market crashed. And then in 2019, they did a 180 and they began cutting rates instead of hiking rates. And that was very sudden, very abrupt. And it made a lot of people very upset. And it gave Powell the reputation of being a pivoter, which is why it seems very difficult for him for the market to take him seriously now. He probably will have to come out and say something strong, just like earlier, uh, earlier, let's say a couple years earlier, when he said that we're not even thinking about thinking of raising rates, he probably will have to say something strong, like Steve Leesman suggested, we're not even thinking about thinking about cutting rates. Yeah, now, no, I, I, think that, I think that's spot on. I love, I love, uh, I love um, uh, Dudley talking about transitory saying, 
you know, if you were willing to ignore inflation on the way up because it's transitory, you should be ignoring inflation on the way down because that's transitory too. So, and then he goes to he goes to wage gains and you know labor costs are accelerating. We had a catastrophic collapse in productivity or unit labor costs in the second quarter. Um, and there's no sign. I mean, you know, wage gains. I've seen this just a couple of weeks ago. Can't remember who put it out, but the disparity between wage gains for those who left their jobs to take a new job, and I think they were getting a 6.4 percent increase, versus wage gains for those who stayed in their job, which is 4.7 percent. The gap was at 1.7 percent, and that has been widening considerably in recent months, continuing to show strength in labor markets. So let me ask you, Joseph, with your time at the Fed. Um, you know, what measures is the Fed, uh, does the Fed hold most important? Or is that always changing depending where you are? Is it, you know, labor costs? Is it, you know, core? Is it, you know, whatever? Like, like, what is the Fed looking at a whole variety of factors, Joseph? The Fed is definitely looking at a whole variety of factors. Uh, One thing to note is that the Fed is, you know, the Fed is a very large and complicated organization and there are many different power centers and each power center will kind of have their own people, their own advisors and their own way of looking at the world. And so you could have people who emphasize market-based measures like uh, or tips or trading or inflation swaps. And you can have people who emphasize more model-driven things uh, such as you know, where's labor, uh, wages and so forth. So they, they really do look at a broad range of things on that note about wages, though, George, something that I would like to bring out is that when I so I've, I've looked at this a little bit. So one of the reasons why we have such a strong labor market, why wages keep going higher, is that we have this fundamental demographic shift where the amount of uh, working people of working age is not really increasing in, in, in the U.S. anymore. And in other countries, it's decreasing. And that has to do with simply demographics. You have the baby boomers retiring. Uh, you have an aging population, and so if you look at a if you look at a graph of demographics, you'll see that for the past few decades, the working labor force has steadily increased, and it's just not doing that anymore. So this high, uh, very strong labor market could be here to stay, or it would take very strong policy measures to weaken it. So that's something that I think is very different uh, for this labor market compared to the past, and that has very big implications for monetary policy as well. Because if wages remain strong, rates will have to go higher to get the desired effects of weakening wage growth. So, Joseph, um, is it therefore the case that we don't really get um, – I mean, what's the likelihood of getting a big slowdown in inflation without a recession? Nah, that's just not likely. <laughs> I mean, if you look at history, that, that's not likely. So I, I think of inflation as coming down um, – when people basically can't afford higher prices anymore. Now, how do people afford higher prices? Well, people get their money from one of three ways. One is wages, which we've just spoken about, and that seems to be strong and probably due to demographics will remain strong. But the other two parts are things that the Fed has more control over. The second part is just by borrowing it into borrowing from a bank, so banks create money. So if you look at bank credit creation, it's going at a rate of 10% a year, and consumer credit is also exceptionally strong. Uh, recent Fed data just that came out, I think, last week showed that consumer credit was growing at a, one of the highest rates that is ever grown at. And the third way that people can afford higher prices is just from asset gains. So you have tremendous wealth in crypto, if you have tremendous wealth in 
your housing equity or, or stocks, you can sell that and you can use it to afford higher prices. And as we see, look around, S&P steadily moving back up, almost close to uh, 10, 15% from all-time highs. So these last two segments, uh, credit growth and asset, asset value, that's something that the monetary policy has a lot of influence over. But it looks like so far where we're at, it, it's not been effective in slowing those two factors down. Um, so it doesn't seem like inflation will slow right now. What do you think the is going through the minds of... Uh, I mean, you mentioned before they're going to have to do something else. So whether it's open mouth operations, as I like to refer to it, um, or I, I don't know, like if you had to handicap this, I mean... The more the market, the higher the market goes, the less happy the Fed must be. So, what could you imagine they might do? Yeah, I'm. I'm sure they're definitely not very happy right now. Um, if I mean, imagine them watching the market react the way that they thought they would, having it come down, having mortgage rates shoot up, and now having all of that reverse. So that's that's definitely not uh, going the direction they need. Financial conditions to tighten, as Dudley suggested, and. There's a, there's a few ways they can do. They're mostly relying on communications, as you suggested. They can trot out uh, Fed speakers. Over the past week, they've had Fed presidents come out, but Fed presidents really aren't all that important. What they really need is someone as part of the Troika to come out. So the power center in the FOMC is, the, is Powell and the two vice chairs, which is at the moment Brainerd and uh, Williams at, the F, at FRBNY. So they need one of those three people to come out and say very strongly uh, what they that they want the market to price out the rate cuts next year. That this, that also puts them in a very complicated position, though, because Powell just recently said we're not doing forward guidance anymore. So they're kind of in a bind of their own creating creation. Some other ways that they can communicate is through things like the Fed minutes. Now, Fed minutes and any other communication like that, it's not really a contemporaneous account of what actually transpired. It's a policy tool designed to, sh to conduct monetary policy. So what happens is that after the meeting, uh, you know, they, they look at what the market's reaction was and want to, under want to make sure that the market understood what they were trying to say. And if the market doesn't understand that, they won't try to uh, make it clear through things like the minutes and Fed speakers what, what, what they want the market to do. So you could see um, you can see more hawkish communication in that and that's it that way as well. Joseph, with Jackson Hole approaching, if markets continue to drift up, wouldn't what would be more of a surprise? They say nothing or they actually say something? Because they've got, you know, the perfect stage to say something. It, it, given the way you describe it, it, strikes me it would be rather odd if they didn't say anything. What, what's your take? George, that that's usually a very good Jackson Hole is usually a perfect place to launch big policy um, speeches. And that would be a very natural way if they wanted to say something big. Jackson Hole would be something to focus on. I completely agree. Right. So, Joseph, let's go to the balance sheet. Um, so I know there's been a lot of talk, chatter about the size of the balance sheet. Does the balance, a couple questions. Does What matters more, the size of the balance sheet or rates and then the, the interchange between those two? And then also maybe give us a mark to market on how's the balance sheet gone down hardly at all the last two or three months. And why is that? It might have to do with the, the treasury general account and so on and so forth. And what do you expect? So first thing, what's more important size of balance sheet or rates or both? 
<laughs> That's a really hard question. I, I, I don't think any. I don't know the answer to that. But I, what I, what I've noticed is that in just usually in market participants have noticed this as well. So just narrowly looking at the impact on on risk assets, when the balance sheet expands, risk assets seem to go higher. And everyone, uh, there's very many different theories about this. And sometimes people just buy because they, they other people are buying. So I think mechanically, though, there is an explanation. And that is that that has to do with the portfolio balancing channel. So let's say that the Fed does um, you know, a billion dollars in QE. What that does is that that takes out, uh, let's say, a billion dollars in treasuries. And from a non-bank perspective, replaces it with a billion dollars in um, bank deposits. So let's say you're a, you're a big asset manager, you sell a billion dollars of treasuries to who someone who ultimately buys it as the Fed and you get a billion dollars in bank deposits in your bank. Now, bank deposits are a form of money, but they are not the same as treasuries. On the one hand, they have credit risk. And on the other hand, they basically have no yield. So on a system-wide level, when the Fed's expanding its balance sheets, it's taking out safe assets and replacing them with assets that have credit risk and have no yield. So if you do this on a very large scale, obviously someone somewhere is not going to be able to have, not be able to accept bank credit risk and they're not be able to accept uh, 0% yield. So they're gonna go and let's say they go buy uh, corporate bonds, buy AFO bonds, and um, buy mortgage-backed securities, and maybe on the margins, someone somewhere buys more stocks. So this chain reaction, to me, seems rather predictable, and it's something that I think the market has come to appreciate. Uh, rates matter as well, but I think they, they matter in a, in a different channel. So when I think of the Fed adjusting rates, uh, what I think about is that they're basically altering the value of treasury securities and other fixed income assets in the financial system. So for example, if the Fed were to hike rates, then you, if, if you hold treasuries or any other fixed income security, you immediately get a haircut in your asset value. Now, because many market participants, um, well, they hold portfolios that are balanced. So let's say if you are, if you have, um, if your treasury portfolio, your fixed income portfolio, loses some value, then you're going to have to, you're going to have to sell some stock to rebalance it so that you go back to your original allocation. And so mechanically, when you hike rates, you're essentially reducing the amount of uh, collateral or money in the system. And that forces people to rebalance and sell the risk assets. So I think of that as the more mechanical channel as to how um, rate hikes or rate cuts uh, feed into the risk asset section. Now, George, about the balance sheet. So I get a lot of questions about that. Is the Fed really doing QT? And why hasn't the balance sheet really shrank a lot? So the balance sheet is shrinking and the Fed is doing QT exactly as, as they telegraphed, but it's not easy to see that because there are some accounting differences that, that may obscure what's happening. And I'll, I'll go, to, go through two of them that I think are making the biggest difference. So, if you look at uh, the Fed's treasury portfolio, um, you'll notice that after it stopped QE in March, uh, the treasury holdings actually continued to steadily increase. That's not the Fed buying more. That's simply uh, due to accounting from tips. So the Fed owns some tips, which are treasury inflation protected. 
securities. And the way that TIPS work is that every month, the principle of TIPS is adjusted to take into account inflation. So uh, let's say if you had $100 in principal and TIPS and inflation, um, let's say it was 12%, maybe uh, after a month, you have 101 in principal and TIPS. So Fed owns a lot of TIPS, inflation is high. So it looks like the Fed's treasury portfolio is increasing, but it's not because they're buying stuff. It's because that their TIPS uh, portfolio is becoming larger. Now, the second part, but so if you take, look at, take that into account, uh, you actually see very clearly that the Fed is shrinking its portfolio uh, of treasury securities by uh, $30 billion a month, which is what they said they would do. Um, the mortgage-backed securities part is a little bit more complicated. Uh, that's because for the Fed buys mortgages that can, they can settle uh, within three months. So some of the mortgages that were bought uh, you know, three months ago are just hitting the Fed's balance sheet now. And if, if you have that dynamic, then when the Fed is shrinking its portfolio, sometimes you'll see, still see increases in the mortgage-backed securities holdings. And that's because it's just past purchases selling now. So, uh, but if you take that into account, that, that they are definitely doing QT there as well. Thanks, Joseph. Um, let's go in a slightly different direction. Um, is the Fed, to what extent, and again, it may vary depending on uh, what's going on in the markets, but to what extent is the Fed paying attention to the dollar and to level the stock market in its thinking? So they pay a lot of attention to this. Uh, this is part of how monetary policy works in their view. If you hear Chair Powell talk at his congressional hearing, he thinks that monetary policy works through three channels. One is altering, affecting uh, interest rate sensitive parts of the economy, like housing. Uh, second is financial conditions, which you can say it's code word for stock prices or credit spreads. And three is the strength of the dollar. So when we see the, when we say, when the Fed says that they want financial conditions to tighten, um, they want the stock market to go lower. And they also wanted the dollar to go higher. And that in their view is part of what uh, can, let's say, fight inflation. Although on that note, I think it's important to realize how that actually works. So when the U.S. buys anything, it's already invoiced in dollars. So there's no exchange rate benefit from a stronger dollar. You don't import deflation because everything that you pay for is still invoiced in dollars. Um, what happens is more that people, let's say if you're in Japan uh, and you're buying oil, the oil suddenly becomes much more expensive in yen because the dollar is appreciated and oil is priced in dollars. And so it's more that other countries have to bear the, the brunt of the the adjustment. Now, the way that the Fed works is that, so I used to work on the open markets desk and every day that we brief the board of governors in DC of what's going on in the markets. So things like financial conditions, where credit spreads, what's the stock market doing, uh, FX, where, where the dollar is strengthening or weakening against. So that's something that we brief them on a daily basis. And if they have any questions, we follow up and uh, you know, look into it. So it's something that they're very attuned into. So, Joe, so that leads to another question, and you and I touched on this briefly uh, earlier this morning. And we were talking about, you know, how is it, the, you know, how the Fed get, get it so wrong last year? Um, many you know, people talk about a, the possibility of a policy mistake being made. Well, the policy mistake already was made when inflation went from one to seven, and they didn't do anything. So how did that happen? 
Is the Fed that blind or that politicized? Like, could you explain that, please? <laughs> yeah, I think this has to be the greatest policy, one of the greatest policy mistakes of our uh, of our time. Um, so, and unfortunately, the Fed was very adamant that inflation was transitory, and you know, as as we see, that did not play out. Inflation came down a little, but most recently, is still around eight and a half percent. So, how did the Fed get in such a huge mess here? I, I think of it. I think I think there are two reasons. One, it one I think is a more high level and not specific to the Fed. So if you if you ask the Fed how did you get it so wrong, they'll say you know the private sector they got it wrong too. And hey, you know what? Look across the pond, look across the world. All those guys they got it wrong too. So you know we're in a good company. It's not really that that doesn't really excuse them though. The problem I think has to do with the reliance on the macroeconomics profession. So macroeconomics seems to approach the world as if it were some giant equation and study it with the tools of physics. But unlike physics, things in the social world, in markets, in the economy, these relationships are always changing and they're very complicated. And so using the toolkit of physics just doesn't seem to have, doesn't seem to get you good results. So rather than saying narrowly that this is a failure of the Fed and keeping in mind that Basically, everyone else who was a PhD economist failed. Um, I, I think it's more of a failure of the economics profession. Uh, that being said, I think there were also political drivers of this as well. Now, the Fed is comprised of people, and they have their own beliefs and values. Uh, one thing that it, it may not be clear to you unless you work in the Fed is that the Fed is very, well, very, very much leans towards the Democratic Party. Maybe that's not surprising since they're part of government. Uh, there's a very good article in, in the Wall Street Journal uh, by Michael Derby, who, who actually looked at the political donations of people who work at the Fed and just overwhelmingly uh, to the Democratic Party. And so they, when, the, when the Biden administration is trying to push big spending bills, um, you know, there, there are a lot of people in the Fed who are sympathetic to those values and to those goals. And I think that makes it into their analysis and that filters through to the FOMC to make it more inclined to, to agree with the company line, which at the moment, at the time, since the Biden administration was trying to pass large uh, fiscal spending, was that inflation was transitory. Joseph, let me ask you, and, and we'll, we'll keep to the higher levels, you don't have to name names, but yeah, this is a very humbling business. You're a market animal. Um, as Yogi Bear famously once said, you know, uh, I think it was something along the lines, predictions, especially about the future, are difficult, okay? And so you're going to get it wrong a lot of the time. That just, just, just comes with the territory. And when you see someone, it could be a portfolio manager, good thing they never said that about me, or a strategist or whoever, so filled with certainty. It's like I always say to myself, you know, note to self, that's, that guy's cooking for a bruising. And when you talk about how the Fed made this mistake and pointing to the failure of the macroeconomics profession, I mean, my gosh, the Fed, if I'm not mistaken, employs 400 PhD economists. I think they got more economists than anybody else. So, like, dude, not you, but like, dude, if I was talking to Powell, I'd say, look in the mirror. But if you never make mistakes, quote unquote, or you never can admit to making a mistake, it puts you in a pretty dangerous position. Uh, and so... You know, and I'll tell one other story. And the question I remember a few years ago, a friend of mine actually met Jerome Powell at a speaking engagement somewhere, and he was talking to him beforehand. 
And he was showing him some uh, weekly research from Ed Hyman, Evercore ISI, does great work. And you know, they have their, their surveys and whatever. It's real-time data. It's not predictions. It's real-time data. And Pal seemed befuddled. to go, like, oh, where'd you get that? Oh, that's really good stuff. Could you send that to my office? So my question to you is, like, are these guys just in their own kind of like ivory tower and they don't, you know, they're not really in the real world? And then one and then two, what would you say about their sort of humility or lack thereof? <laughs> yeah, you know, that they are definitely in their own world. And the Fed does have a small army of economists. The, the typical Fed senior, let's say, official economist, a senior official who is an economist, their career path is kindergarten to PhD, and then they go to the Fed and become a Fed lifer. So the people who have a lot of influence on in, in monetary policy and research, these people don't really have any real-world experience. They've never traded anything. They've never worked in the private sector. They've never ran anything. So their experience is, is limited and comes through textbooks mostly. So that's part of the reason why I think that uh, some of the some of the research or some of the things that they that come out of the Fed don't seem to make a lot of sense if for to someone who has actually in uh, the real world like yourself, George, who has a lot of experience. Um, but I, I will say something to Chair Powell's credit, though. Now, Chair Powell, he 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 comes from the industry, and he's not an economist; he's a lawyer. So I remember when he first joined the Fed, he he made a remark, something to the extent that the these models that he gets from economists, they're, they're mostly for reference. So he understands that, you know, this stuff, what they what they produce, it's it's nice, but it's not something to be taken literally. And he's recently come out with the saying, we should be humble and nimble. So I think he's been getting to more and more realize that uh, this army of PhD economists he has, you know, maybe they don't really know what, what's going on. And he probably needs to listen to people like uh, like your friend there. Got it. So um, just to reset the room, we're speaking with Joseph Wang, a.k.a. the Fed guy. He is absolutely must-follow if you want to um, get an understanding of what's going on with all things Fed. And the market's all Fed all the time right now. So, Joseph, I, I, I hang on to every word you say, and I watch all your podcasts, and I want to thank you for all this. If you have a question, please uh, raise your hand. Come on up. Um Joseph, so with all that, for the average listener in the room, we're just trying to make money and figure out what to do with our capital. What does this add up uh, in your mind? What does this add up to in terms of outlook for risk assets, stocks, bonds, et cetera? Um, is it, what's, what's the takeaway uh, if, 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 as, as you see it? So I, the way that I view the market is that the biggest driver in the market post-GFC is monetary policy. So not earnings, not anything like that. It's what the Fed would do. Now, the Fed is actually really, really clear what it will do. It wants to tighten financial conditions. That means rates have to go higher. That means risk assets have to go lower. So if you're in the market, I think what you should do is you should uh, you know, have a much higher cash allocation. You should stay in the short end. You should stay liquid. Um, if you have a wide band-aid, you, know, you can look at, uh, let's say, being, being short or, uh, let's say, looking at VIX, it looks like option. It looks like implied vol is low, maybe puts things like that. Um, but if you're just a, a you know standard retail investor, I, I would, I would be very cautious, and I would be in cash. Follow-up question. Um, question of moral hazard. I mean, all these excesses, and there are too many to enumerate here. It's plainly a function of just too much money in the system. You know, we've had the everything bubble stocks, 
bonds, commodities, real estate collectibles, baseball cards, SPACs. I mean, you just go down the list. The notion of moral hazard. Um, and I think it was Jeremy Stein, a uh, former Fed official. He's no longer, he's back at Harvard, really smart guy. He spoke a number of years ago about the feedback loop and the role of uh, instability in asset prices in determining policy. Is this a view which is shared widely or even discussed at the Fed, the idea of moral hazard? I think if you remember during the GFC period, uh, moral hazard was very much in the minds of people at Bernanke at the time. And that was part of the reason they let uh, Lehman fail. But, you know, that didn't work out all that, that well. So um, I think that the approach taken is, is different since then. Now, so when you have these crises, you, you have to, um, th there is, as you say, the trade-off where you could step in, but then if you make sure that bad agents don't have, uh, aren't punished, then you just get more bad behavior later on. The approach taken since the GFC is simply to make sure that people don't, are not in a position to get uh, into, into a position where they need to be saving. So post-GFC, there's tremendously more regulation on, on banks, for example, and money market funds so that they're not able to take as much risk as they used to. So they'll never be in a position where they have to be bailed out in the public. Now, you can think that if this approach is taken to the next level, and we still have big failures, let's say, not, let's say, a, a regulated into like a bank, but maybe like, a, you know, let's say, a, a mutual fund or something like that blows up, or maybe, uh, let's say, someone, uh, a crypto lender or something like that blows up, and that causes a lot of damage, then the answer is, is not, is to build it up for now to prevent the damage from hurting people right now, but to then up regulation significantly so that they'll never be in a position to uh, harm everyone else again. So that's that's my impression of their approach. Right. That's looking at it from one perspective. What about the other perspective, i.e., who was the arsonist that created the conditions that set up the excess and speculative boom in the first place? So I'm thinking about moral hazard the other way. Like when you, when you see – you may say, well, you know, as long as the bank system is not at risk, who cares if – you know, tech stocks go to the moon and back again. But, you know, whether it's SPACs or it's crazy tech stocks or this, that, everything else, I mean, or real estate, which is, you know, enormous asset. The way, the, the biggest way, if you would way to ensure that you, you don't have a bust is prevent the boom in the first place. Does that ever enter their thinking? Um, yeah, I've, I'm not sure how Tao thinks about that. Um, that's a very difficult question because there are trade-offs involved. I mean, booms have good things come out of booms, right? So sometimes good technology, good companies come out of booms. If you if you don't let people, if if you because you're afraid of the bust, you don't let people boom, then uh, that that's not clear. That's necessarily good to me. So uh, it's it. a trade-off question decided by people. Yeah. Let's move over to crypto a little bit. Um... Does crypto even show up on the Fed's uh, radar screen? And then two um, thoughts potentially about CBDCs uh, going coming down the road. Yeah, for for the first part, so I can say that the Fed doesn't care about uh, that's crypto or the altcoins, Bitcoin, things like that. So when I was on the open markets desk, our job was to brief 
uh, Fed officials on things that they cared about in the markets, and they never cared about what was happening with the price of Bitcoin or Ether or something like that. So fr from their point of view, this was just a speculative asset in the fringes of the financial system. Uh, it was very small. It did not pose any systemic risk. Um, they were not worried about it at all. It was like, say, the U.S. military not being worried about Somalian pirates far off into the far off in the ocean. On the CBDC thing, that is ultimately a, a political question, and the answer that you get really depends on who you speak with. If you talk with, uh, let's say, uh, former chair of, vice chair of supervision. Uh, Quarles, he'll say that, you know, at CBDC, it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Um, and from my perspective, I agree with, with him. So I, I don't really see what a CBDC would do. When I go to the bank, I put money there. I, my deposits are guaranteed by FDIC insurance, so it's safe. When I make electronic payments through Visa, MasterCard, uh, it's, it goes through instantly. I, I don't have any problem at all. And I'm sure anyone who wants a bank account can just go to their local bank and open up a bank account and get a cup of coffee. I, there's no way a CBDC would make banking more accessible. Uh, but if you speak to other members, uh, let's say Brainerd, she'll, she'll give you something, a different answer. She'll, she'll talk about safety in the financial system, efficiency in payments, making competition, things like that. Um, I, I, I don't really know what they will do. It's going to really come down to who's in charge of the Fed um, at that time. So uh, concretely, there, I don't see a CBDC playing a, a, a needed role, um, but I think it does serve a political purpose. If you see across the world that who likes CBDCs the most, it's, it's ultimately places like China because CBDCs are a very powerful surveillance tool. So um, I, I think it really just depends on your political view. Great. So again, if you have a question for Joseph, uh, please raise your hand. Joseph, um, for those of us who have not had the privilege of working on the on the desk um, and haven't, and I, I presume you've had interactions with you know most, if not all, the 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 bigwigs that uh, that we know that we know of, um, what is it that the average person wouldn't appreciate um, about the Fed, the inner workings of the Fed? Is it just you know the just ordinary guys that don't know what they're doing, they're trying to figure it out, or the arrogant blowhards full of themselves, or you know they're 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 filled with, with, with it's incredibly politicized. I mean, what is it like actually working there? And, and and maybe speak to perhaps it depends on the different levels of the Fed. Maybe the guys in the desk don't get to talk to the big shots. I and mean, just give us a little sort of insight inside baseball. What it's like actually working at the Fed. So, like in any place, there are good things and bad things. I I found working on the open market stacks to be a tremendous experience. So when you're on the desk, you you can talk to uh, basically anyone in the financial world and ask them for their perspective as to what's happening in the market. So we had relationships with all the big banks, all the big investment funds, uh, foreign central banks and so forth. And we also had tremendous amounts of confidential data. So it's a tremendous place to learn. You get an inside view of the financial markets that literally no one else in the world has. Um, but when, when it comes to personnel, though, one of the things that you know that, well, the Fed is, is government. So at the end of the day, it's a, it's a business that can't fail, run by people who can't get fired. And so the incentives aren't there ever to, to do a very good job. And that's kind of what happens at the Fed. So um, people join, many very smart and motivated people join, and they learn a ton and they leave. And 
the bottom line is that if you're a com company that doesn't have any profit or loss that can never fail, there's really no point in, in trying to retain people. And so you become mostly just a utility or uh, a place where people sit around and collect paychecks. So the people who actually eventually rise up to decision-making uh, levels at the Fed, they tend to be there almost completely on the strength of their tenure, whereas everyone else who, who could leave, uh, they would go into the private sector and, and you know make a lot more money and be judged by what they can do. So there, there's this huge negative selection there. And that, I think, is really, really concerning because the Fed is such a powerful institution. Yet many of the people who make these decisions just don't don't really seem to have the, the knowledge or expertise uh, that is suitable to the job. But to be fair, that, that's probably true of many public institutions um, in the U.S. And oh, I think wow. Over the, over the... <laughs> not, I'm not feeling any better, jo Joseph. <laughs> I got one question, then we're going, to, we're going to go to Jackson and Gordon. I got one more question for you. Um, there's a lot going on um, around the world. Um, a lot of places where the situation is far more dire than in the U.S. Uh, situation in Europe, and exactly looking to rot for all the reasons we know. China, things are going from bad to worse. The Japanese can't get out of their own way, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. To what extent are developments abroad, to what extent do they factor into the Fed's thinking? And then I also didn't mention emerging markets. So the whole, all of it, because yeah, you know, the U.S. has become an increasingly small part of the world as the rest of the world's grown. But we have the we have the world's financial system. Everything's done in dollars. So surely, foreign developments must enter into thinking. But but how do they enter into their thinking? That's a great question. So I, the Fed will, will tell you that you know, first and foremost, their responsibility is is to the. U.S. and their mandates doesn't have anything to do with what's going on ac across the world. Um, and, and that's true. But what's unique about the Fed is that they control the dollar. And the dollar is a global currency, as you, as you noted, that's used around the world. Now, the thing is that if there's something, if there's a demand for dollar financing, let's say in Japan or China or somewhere outside of the U.S., that directly spills over to financial conditions in the U.S., because people who really need dollars, uh, let's say Mexico or whatnot, they can ultimately come onshore and bid for dollars in the U.S. So for the Fed, it's impossible for them to control short-term interest rates in the U.S. without also controlling short-term interest rates abroad because the two markets are deeply connected. So even though their mandate is strictly what happens in the U.S., that's impossible to do unless they have a foothold abroad. And the way they go about doing that is through a tool called the FX swap lines. And FX swap lines are, uh, in a sense, an uh, emergency lending facility to foreign banks. So let's say, um, let's say you're in Europe, you're, a European bank has, is getting squeezed uh, for dollars. Now, that's a problem because the ECB can't print dollars. So what are they going to do? So what would happen is that the European bank would go to the ECB, who in turn would go to the Fed and borrow dollars from the Fed, and the ECB take those takes those dollars and then lends to the foreign foreign commercial bank. So, the the Fed has these tools to to um, to have a foothold in in, a, in what's happening abroad in the dollar world, um, but that's just kind of the extent of their dealings. Um, when you talk about things like the currency strength and so forth, the Fed will just tell you that you know foreign central banks have tools to deal with that themselves. So when you see enormous dollar strength, 
um, affecting how affordable things are in, in some developing countries, uh, the Fed is not going to do anything about that. They will just point to the foreign central banks who can either, let's say, raise interest rates to strengthen their foreign currency or um, draw down their foreign reserves to to weaken uh, the dollar, strengthen their local currency and so forth. So it, it's a mix between the Fed's toolkits and what they expect foreign central, ban- central banks to do, to do themselves. Got it. All right, so now let's go to some questions. Uh, first, we've got Jackson and then Gordon, and then we'll do Michael. Uh, ja- uh, Jackson, good to see you, man. What's up? Got a question for Joseph? Absolutely. Joseph, huge fan. I own your book. I've gifted your book. Big fan of your work. My question to you is, is I've got Randy Krosner getting more airtime than he got during the GFC. Dudley's talking this down. You're talking it down. The deputies are not cutting it. So what is it going to take for Powell to rein this in? I mean, I just am so frustrated. You know, Loretta Mester, it's just not working. He's got to come out and do something. So when and, and what is it going to take? I mean, does this it's just very frustrating. Hey, Jackson, thanks so much for your support and your readership. Um, I, yeah, you know, I, I share your frustration, and I'm sure Paul is sharing your frustration, too. It just won't go down, no matter how many Fed speakers he sends out. Uh, I think th- the key is that the Paul Fed has just this reputation of being a pivoter, and the market doesn't take them seriously. So he's going to have to up his game. So that can be a couple things. Well, three things. One, it could be what's written in the minutes uh, when they're released. It could be him or one of the uh, other two vicers come out and say something, or it could be, as George suggested, uh, in Jackson Hole coming up soon, that he makes some big speech that uh, that conclusively convinces the markets that he's going to be higher for longer. So he has a lot of opportunity coming up, so I, I'm sure that he will, he's going to take it. Awesome. Thanks. Uh, now we got a Gordon and then we got Michael. Gordon, welcome. Hey, George, thanks for the call. Joseph, um, excellent, uh, excellent commentary. Uh, just two questions. Um, you know, one statistic that I've looked at is over the first 100 years of the Fed, they did about, you know, 900, just under a trillion in, in, in balance sheet expansion. And with Obama, with QE, they did that in three years. And with Powell, with COVID, they did that in two months. Um, and in addition to that, you know, they vocally urged Congress to join in what I see as a spending orgy. And as a result, we got, you know, 50 year high inflation. Um, are these people reckless in your view or do they not know what they're doing? Um, and then I have a follow up. Thank you. So I, I so when I think of what happened in the past year, so as you know, Gordon, that inflation is out of control. So. I think of that as more about the fiscal side than the monetary policy side. So just printing and spending trillions of dollars, which is what the fiscal authorities did. Now that is absolutely reckless. And that obviously predictably created huge inflation. But on the, on the Fed side, what they did was also not good. What they should have done was lean against fiscal spending. Um, but if you look at their actions, let's say keeping rates at zero and, and buying treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, that, that's more of an interest rate channel, more of a financial market channel. I think of that having, having big impacts on risk assets and the housing sector, which is very risk, interest rate sensitive. But about the broader stuff, though, I, I think it has less impact. I think they both did not do a good job, um, but I would blame the fiscal side more than the Fed for what we see today. Yeah, but I guess on the, on the fiscal side, I guess my, my point was, 
Chairman Powell vocally urged Congress to spend fiscally during COVID. And I haven't heard him rein that back in. In fact, they just did another trillion dollars in fiscal stimulus. So is he do you think the Fed is not to somewhat blame for these people continuing to spend recklessly? Gordon, that's a really good point. Now, usually whenever Chair Powell was asked about his commentary on, on congressional actions with fiscal policy, he, he'd say something like, I'm going to stay in my lane. I'm going to stay in my lane. And he says that over and over again during congressional hearings. But as you correctly note, back then he was hinting that, you know, you should go big. So that was definitely, I think, a wrong move on his part. He should not have done that. And that does, I think, get him some responsibility some more responsibility for what we see today. Okay, one last question. Um, not to plug anybody, but Daniel, Daniela DiMartino, she has a, a pretty good book that I've read a couple of times. And my key takeaway is that people inside the Fed know these models don't work, but they continue to use them. Um, and given you have some experience there, wanted to know your thoughts there. And then one last question, you know, and this is kind of a, a 2000 foot up question, not to be um, aggressive, but, when I look at, you know, great empires, like it seems like inflation is what has, has really brought down great empires. It's not wars. The wars are preceded by heavy inflation. Is there a fear of inflation at the Fed or do you think that they just don't care? Thank you. Uh, well, they say they care a lot. I, you know, I don't know what's in their head. So the, so about the model. So that really depends on who was making the decision. Everyone, approaches this problem differently. Paul, of course, is not a PhD economist. He's noted that, you know, models are kind of for reference. So I, I would think that he doesn't take these models seriously. At least he's, at least that's what he suggested when he first came in. He seemed to change his mind and take it with a more forecast as his tenure went on. Now I, I'm hoping that this recent fiasco uh, convinced them that he, these models are not reliable. And so maybe hopefully he doesn't rely on them as much anymore. Uh, I think you raise a good point about the incentive structure. So everyone who's, who said that inflation will be transitory and contribute to these policy errors, I'm sure they all work at the Fed still. So there's really no accountability. And because there's no accountability, I, it seems like from an incentive perspective, there's, there's no reason to really care whether or not uh, you're doing a good job or not. Um, so, you know, we have, if we have high inflation, if we have to induce a recession to get inflation under control, that really doesn't affect anyone at the Fed. They'll still have their jobs, they'll still get their lockstep increases, and they'll still have their guaranteed pension. So th there's an incentive problem here that, that's not easy to solve. Thank, thank you. Thanks, Gordon. Let's go to Michael and then Kevin. Michael, the floor is yours. Uh, hi, thanks, guys. Uh, I'm the chief economist at IBM. So, Joseph, I download these SOMA statements every week, all seven major categories. And once again, we get a week with no change in quantitative tightening. And they're about 35% of the way of where they said on schedule they'd be. When are they ever going to start quantitative tightening? And why are they being so slow with this? What are you afraid of? Yeah, so, Michael, thank you for your question. So, th they are doing quantitative tightening um, exactly as they noted. The reason this doesn't look that way on the on their public filings has to do with just two, two uh, idiosyncrasies in accounting. Uh, first is that you know, when you're looking at the treasury portfolio, uh, the Fed has a lot of tips, which are inflation protected securities, and tips principles go up each month uh, 
as they're adjusted for inflation, which is very high. So that's kind of the reason why their treasury portfolio might seem to uh, go up a bit sometimes. And it, it might be the reason why it seems like they're not doing the full decline in what they promised. Now, the second part, when you're looking at the MBS portfolio, it is also declining, as they say, but it might be obscured by the fact that some uh, settlements, so the Fed, when the Fed buys MBS, it'll settle within three months of purchase. So sometimes uh, the balance sheet can go higher because purchases made in the past are just settling and showing up on the balance sheet today. So that's why that the drop in MBS isn't that super apparent. Um, I actually have a, a piece on this that I could send you uh, if you're interested. So you can just send me a DM, but it's, it's just really about accounting. Great, thanks. Thanks, Michael. Let's go to Kevin and then David. Kevin? Uh, hi, guys. Uh, George, great space as always. Joseph, uh, really enjoy your work. Um, my question relates back to uh, back in the dark ages when I used to trade a short book. We always sensed that Greg Gipp was kind of the back channel way that the Fed would kind of signal their intents on moves uh, during the blackout window or um, different times. And, and my sense is that Nick Timmerow seems to be the same. What's your take on that? Uh, it, it does seem to be the case that uh, Nick was, was the president who wrote the story that the Fed is going to go 75. Uh, Nick also has a very good book uh, called The Trillion Dollar Triage, uh, which is, you know, it's a kind of account of what happened and it includes a lot of information on, on Paul. So it, it does appear that they have a very good relationship. Uh, so I, I, I agree that uh, Nick is, is basically the, uh, the, the new unofficial leak for the Fed. Great, thanks. So, Joseph, question for you before we go to David, who's next. Um, given your views, I just want to go back to something you said before, so make people sh make sure people heard it. You're pretty downbeat on risk assets. You think you wouldn't buy stocks, you wouldn't buy bonds. I mean, where do you think rates? Where do you think rates are going to go? Be it short term, long term. You have any thoughts on that? How would you how would you go about thinking about where interest rates might go from there? So if you're talking about, let's say, the 10-year, I think of rates as supply and demand. Now, if you look at what's happened, so the supply of treasury securities is largely determined by the fiscal deficit and in part by quantitative tightening. If you look at the projections of the supply for the coming years, well, they're historically high. So, you know, one and a half trillion this year, next year. And then thereafter that, it's going to be a trillion dollars forever. Um, if you think back what things were like just a few years ago, treasury supply was about half a trillion a year. So you, you have an asset which is basically growing tremendously, just tremendous issuance every year. And on the demand side, it's, it's really not clear who the, who the buyers are. Pre-COVID, the marginal buyers of treasuries were the hedge funds. They're doing it part of their, um, uh, their relative value trades. Post-COVID, it was the Fed buying trillions and also the commercial banks buying hundreds of billions. But, you know, those guys, they're not buying anymore. Uh, they've told you they're not buying, Fed is not buying. So you have tremendous supply of treasuries and you have people, I don't know, marginal buyer that we don't know who is yet and inflation potentially rising. So I think rates go meaningfully higher. I would expect, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if the 10-year goes to 4% by the end of the year. Wow, that'd be something. 
All right, so we've got David and then Frank. David, you're up. So considering, uh, thank you very much, uh, George, uh, and thank you very much, Joseph, as well. Considering uh, what we were just discussing, what what's your perspective on uh, real yields in that uh, relation? And given dual mandate, um, the actual relation on the elasticity of employment and uh, specifically Robert E. Hall's long slump uh, and, uh, and the specific economical activity as we're going into it as to us potentially going into this slumpish economical times. So it, it does look like, so it does look like economic growth is, is slowing. So I think that, again, I would reiterate my point that something big that's happening in the world is that we're, we're, we're going into a world where we have both fewer people and older people. That means there's going to be fewer people working. That means the supply of labor is declining. Now, if you think about growth output as just inputs plus productivity, which is being able to get this more outputs with the same inputs, then you're necessarily entering into a world where structurally you're going to have less output. That's not that's not necessarily bad. We overall we're going to a world with fewer people as well. So I, I don't think that this past hundred well past thousand years where we just keep growing and growing, that that doesn't make sense anymore if your population is shrinking. So um, I think that means very different things for monetary policy as well, because if you're not growing structurally, then the question is, how do you allocate resources between people, uh, let's say between people who are retired and don't produce anything and between young people who are, who are still producing something, and especially when you have more and more retired people. I think the way to reallocate that, um, of course, fiscal policy, but from a monetary policy standpoint, it's higher real yields. You want to make sure that the people who produce stuff are incentivized to not consume them so that the retirees can consume them. So I, I think that real yields are, will also go higher in the future. Um, I'm not sure if that answers your question. Thanks for that, David. Frank, you're up. Frank, floor is yours. George, thank you. And Joseph, thank you as well. Um, you know, Quantitative tightening is supposed to go up to $95 billion, as you know, in uh, in September, uh, with uh, 35, I think, uh, in mortgages, mortgages aren't going to roll off at that speed, um, and so the, they'll end up doing less if they only do it through roll off. I'm I'm curious whether you think Powell introduces the concept of selling mortgages at Jackson Hole. Thanks. Well, that's a that that would be a hawkish surprise. So, as you note, Frank, that the so, more, uh, so the cap mortgages is $35 billion, but because prepayments are low, um, the, the expectation based on projections from, from FRB and Y is that they'll do, it will be about $25 billion in principal uh, payments a month. So um, they're never going to hit, there's, there's going to be $10 billion gap between um, the cap and what actually gets paid down every month. And that $10 billion gives them leeway to sell, let's say, $10 billion a month to meet that cap. Um, I think that's by design, and I don't know if they're going to be selling it, though. So earlier in the year, there's a lot of whispers about that, but I don't really hear Fed officials talking about that anymore. Um, one reason could be that if you look at the, the spread between mortgages and the tenure, it's pretty wide. So um, just selling mortgages, I don't it's maybe not that necessary. Maybe what's really the problem is, is just the tenure is too low. But that would definitely be a hawkish surprise, and it's it's some it's a toolkit uh, that they could deploy. 
Um, mortgage rates look like they're back down maybe around five. So if that's something that concerns them, that's, that's definitely a, a lever they could pull. Thanks for that. Hey, uh, Joseph, do you think uh, the Fed has been surprised by, um, I mean, obviously the, the, the market response function in terms of the stock market has done to surprise them, the market's not obeying them, so to speak. But in terms of the economy, um, cockamamie idea I have, and that is that when I kind of look at the world, balance sheets, generally speaking, and again, there are, you know, averages are very misleading. But generally speaking, if you look at, say, at the consumer balance sheet, you look at consumer uh, debt service ratios, they're very healthy. Uh, corporates, um, you know, certainly as evidenced by spreads, have started to move out a little bit, but they're still, you know, reasonably tamed. The idea that the system's so much more liquid that they kind of, you know, foam down the runways before impact, it may be leading to a notion that rates have to go a lot higher to uh, slow the economy uh, meaningfully compared to, say, previous cycles. I mean, you know, I'm sure you've read your share of articles over the last few years. Oh, the economy is so levered. If rates just go up, you know, a quarter percent, half percent, whatever, the world's going to come to an end. And maybe that was true a few years ago, but the idea that, again, economic actors are more liquid and have better balance sheets maybe means that rates have to go up considerably more, real rates have to go up considerably more to bring forth the slowdown in the economy that uh, they're looking for. Does that make any sense to you at all or completely crazy? What would your reaction be? That makes perfect sense to me and probably part of the reason why the economy is still just doing, if you look at, let's say, credit growth and asset prices, still pretty strong. Uh, you're right that many people point to the large debt burden that uh, the, cons- the households have. But as you know, there's another side to that as well. There's the liabilities, but there are also assets. And assets have gone up a lot, such as consumer household net worth is you know, still near, near all-time highs. And if you look more closely on the liability side, a lot of people... Um, were able to refinance their mortgages at historically low rates. And mortgage debt is the biggest portion of debt for for households. So you have a lot of households who are basically locked in at two and a half, three percent mortgages, even as inflation is eight percent. So um, that's that's a big tailwind for households. And it, if it, it and it probably suggests that um, all things equal, you also have to have higher rates to be able to slow down their spending. So. Not just that, though. So uh, people have talked about the savings, household savings a lot as well. And that, that, that is actually true. So back then, back during COVID, um, the government showered a lot of money on people and people didn't have the opportunities to spend it. But it wasn't just government uh, stimulus. A lot of the upper income people, they, you know, they, they usually they spend their money on experiences like travel, like restaurants, and that was all closed so you had all these people who were making a lot of money and just not spending it because they didn't have anything to spend it on. That over the over the past uh, two years, that accumulates about over two trillion dollars in extra savings that people have to spend, and that that's I think kind of a sizable war chest that can be used to continue to fuel spending no, no matter what interest rates were. So I think that's another as a point that that could suggest uh, that could agree with your suggestion that maybe rates actually need to be higher because the consumer 
the households are, are in a stronger position than they were in the past. Thanks, Joe. That gives me a lot to think about. Let's go to Weimar. Weimar, the floor is yours. Hey, thanks for letting me talk. So uh, my question is really about uh, something Neil Kashkari said at the beginning of August. He brought up uh, potentially uh, basically slowing down the money multiplier by using the counter-cyclical capital buffers that are available um, uh, for banks. Um, and I was wondering if you thought that was a serious suggestion the Fed might actually pursue. He also said that 18 countries across Europe will have activated it by the end of the year, the end of next year, actually. So the, so the Fed has, so the Fed has control over um, the banking system. So in the past, what the Fed would do is they would adjust rates. And then uh, based on that, they would try to alter credit creation. But post GFC, the Fed, the Fed has a lot more control of the commercial banks, there's a lot more regulation. And one of that is the countercyclical buffer, which in effect makes the banks maybe more or less likely to create credit because uh, they have to have more capital. And that could be a tool to slow down the economy. But I would also note though that um, in the modern financial economy, banks play a much smaller role than they did in the past. You have the capital markets as another big provider of financing that the Fed doesn't have as much control over. Um, so if you wanted to borrow money, you could go to a bank and then the bank would be affected by whatever the Fed wants to do to slow down credit. But you could also go to all these private debt funds, uh, BDCs, uh, you know, private equity, or you could issue, float your own bond and have a mutual fund buy it. So uh, in, in that sense, um, you know, the Fed has less control. And I hope that Neil Kashkari did not mention the money multiplier, that would be very disappointing. Um, most people don't understand that's not really how the world works. But, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, you did mention that. <laughs> uh, well, it's, anyway, so I, I think it does help by tapping down on bank credit creation. But as I also noted, it's, it's bank, banks are a smaller part of the financial economy. And so it, it would have some effect, but probably not a lot. Joseph, I want to thank you. You've been incredibly generous. This has been very enlightening, um, getting into the weeds um, on all things Fed. Um, please follow um, Joseph. He's a terrific, uh, terrific mind, knows more about the Fed than is, and can drill it down into in, you know, easy-to-understand concepts. Um, and also, uh, do, do buy his book. I bought his book. Uh, it's Central Banking 101. Um, it's got very good reviews. So, Joseph, I salute you. I mean, not only have you been giving us a great hour and 15 minutes here, but your book, to get such good reviews on something which is sort of as dry and unusually uninteresting as Fed policy. I mean, it was uh, my, my hat's off to you. Uh, anything was possible. So, Joseph, I really want to thank you. Um, this has been great. And, um, again, I hope to consider coming back in the future. Thanks, George. I had a great time. I really enjoy your space. I've learned a tremendous amount from all of them. Thanks for all the good questions, and you know, happy to come back anytime. No more, more than more. I hope you'll consider coming back. And what makes these rooms so great is contributions from folks such as yourself and all the folks in the audience. I mean, got a tremendous audience here. Um, so, anyway, with that, I'd like to close the room. Um, it's a beautiful day outside, and I got work to do. Um, so, I want to thank all of you, and um, stay safe, be well, take care, bye bye. <laughs>